Well, this morning we have a guest speaker. Can we welcome Chris Thompson uh, to our community today? Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm I'm turned on. There we go. Okay, perfect. Um, Hey, I am glad to be here this morning. Um, Like Eric said, my name is Chris Thompson. I am uh, a part of this Harbor Church's community. I am the Harbor Students Pastor, so I was in... Chicago for five years, and before that, I was a part of Harbor Churches doing student ministries, uh, both with South Harbor and Harbor Life. Then moved to Chicago, and now I'm back. We're back here uh, to help kind of oversee all of the student ministries that happens. And I'm primarily over at South Harbor uh, every week, getting to run their student ministries there. I'm a part of Young Life in the area, being a Young Life church partner. Uh, Student ministries is what I do. Um, And the reason being is because I remember what it was like being in middle school and high school. It's a very confusing time. Most of life is very confusing time. I found out the other day when I was talking to my parents about parenting, I asked them the question. I said, you guys were just making it up the entire time, weren't you? And they're like, son, we're still making it up. And they're in their 60s, right? And So I remember being in middle school and in high school, and it's just being this really confusing time where I'm trying to figure uh, it out. And some of the questions that I was asking in high school, uh, I grew up in Hudsonville, so not super far away, uh, were questions like, the world has to be bigger than Hudsonville, right? There's so many things that I was seeing through the news and through the internet as it was kind of like blossoming in the mid-2000s and asking these questions of like, the world just has to be bigger than Hudsonville, right? And I had a youth pastor at the time who would take me places to rural Tennessee, rural Appalachia, downtown Grand Rapids, Chicago, Nashville, all of these different places to help expand my worldview of what the world actually was and how the gospel plays a part in all of these different places uh, that weren't just Hudsonville, Michigan. And so it is my burden and my passion and I think the desire that God has given me uh, to help students who are in that stage of life asking those same questions as information and technology has blossomed to help answer that question of the world has to be bigger than this. And how does the gospel play a part in a world that's much bigger than what we think it is? And so that's what I love to do. That's what I do day in and day out. That's what I think about in my downtime. Uh, It's it's just, it's my heartbeat is to help students answer uh, that question. So it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, On the screen behind me, you'll see a picture of my family. They're down here. Most of them are down here in the front. Uh, My wife, Sam, uh, I think I have a picture of them. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Okay. Did I upload the wrong slides? Maybe I don't. Okay. Anyways, we'll roll with it. We'll see what we got this morning. Uh, So my family, uh, my wife, Sam, is down here in the front in the blue shirt. Uh, We've been married for eight years coming up this year, which has been really fun. We met through Facebook, uh, which is a whole different story for another time. Uh, It was like the original like dating app back in the day or something like that. So we met uh, back in 2013. We got married in 2015. We have two kids. My daughter Mila is up here. She's five and a half. Uh, My son Ronan is in nursery this morning. He's one and a half. They are the the loves of uh, my life. One cool story is I've known Jordan, your pastor, for a really long time. I've known him since 2010. Uh, And I just want you to know this. He loves this church I'm sure he is enjoying being with his family and his newborn this morning, and I'm sure it kills him to not be here this morning with you all as well. The reason I know that is uh, in 2013, Jordan and I were leading a mission trip, Youth Week. Uh, Some of you may remember what Youth Week is. This church was a prayer of his when he didn't live in the house that he was over here. He was over off of Clyde Park in like 36th or something like that. 
he was praying back at that time for this community, for a place in Wyoming that was blossoming with the gospel for all of you, even before you walked through uh, this door. And so I've been a part of this journey for Wyoming Harbor for a long time with him, praying alongside of it. And this is my first time being here. So I'm excited uh, to be here with all of you this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, a, a term called repentance. Fun word, things that we kind of make us uncomfortable sometimes. Having to own up to the mistakes that we make. Having to go to people that maybe we've wronged and make things right again. If you've been with us for a while, we've been in this series going through all of the book of Genesis uh, since January. And now we're getting to the part where we're talking about these two brothers called Jacob and Esau. And so as we jump into talking about repentance this morning, I just want to pray uh, because I hope that the Lord this morning makes you a little uncomfortable and put something on your heart that maybe uh, there's some work there for you to do. Okay, so let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for uh, the sound of cars outside, the rain this morning, uh, this ability to just be together, to love each other, to walk alongside each other, to hold each other accountable, and to bring the gospel uh, into all areas of our world, especially here uh, in Wyoming. And so we pray as we dig into your word that we would leave changed, that we would leave um, being renewed, and that we would leave with the Spirit leading us into the work that you already have set out for us to do. So God, we love you, uh, and we will talk to you soon. Amen. Uh, so if you haven't been with us through this series already, I want to take us back just to kind of catch us all up, okay? So we started our story with this guy named Abraham. Remember this song, Father Abraham had many sons, right? It's this guy, this older guy who left home. He lived in uh, Mesopotamia, which is modern day kind of Iraq in the southeastern part down by the ocean with Tigris and Euphrates. This guy Abraham was called to leave his family, leave everything that he had behind and travel to the land that this God would show him who was reaching out and, and saying, hey, follow me into the unknown. So he and his family pack up. They walk about 600 to 700 miles northeast, which is already a long enough drive in a car. But can you imagine walking through that? Uh, they walked 600 to 700 miles northeast of there where they stopped. His father passes away, and then, the God, and then God calls him to go down to Canaan. The big theme around this passage was God calling us to trust him, right? Abraham steps up to the edge of this territory that he had always known was home, that gods were kind of territorial back in that day is what they believed. And so Abraham got to the edge and he was faced with this decision. Toes over the line, do I go? Do I follow God? Do I trust this God enough that he is going to see me through, that his promises are good and I will make it to where he's calling? And Abraham takes one step after another into God's promises. And so through that series, we learned to trust in God, to trust the promises that God has already set out for us. At the end of Abraham's story, we're introduced to his son, Isaac. This is the individual who uh, they had prayed for him and Sarah had prayed for for years, decades even. And finally, he has this son and God is told, God tells him that he is to sacrifice his son. They go up on the top of this mountain. They gather all of this wood. His son carries, Isaac carries this wood up. And then his dad is about to strike him down with a knife and God stops him. The only thing we hear about Isaac is this story, and then the story, the next story we hear about him is of him getting married. And in this series, we talked about trauma and how trauma can significantly impact who we are as individuals and how our hearts can be radically changed because of the trauma that we experience and how God can enter into that trauma to redeem us. 
And out of that, we hear this story after Isaac is married to this wonderful woman named Rebecca. Uh, we hear the story of two brothers being born, Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Rebecca are not able to have children, it seems, for a little while either. And so they start praying for these kids. And it says in the scriptures that they, are, they become pregnant. And what's said about these kids sets the tone for the entire passage that we've been going through to this point. It says that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. As we learned in the past couple of weeks at the there are two moments that kind of define these brothers' relationships. First, there's the stealing of the birthright uh, where we read once when Jacob was cooking some stew. I think we have, maybe we have scripture for that or maybe we don't. Okay, cool. Uh, We read in Genesis 25 that once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Uh, He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That is why uh, he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear it to me first. And so he swore the oath to him, sealing or selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. We learn in this passage, uh, I'm sure Jordan talked about this, about what a birthright was, like the double portion uh, of an inheritance that you essentially were to become the patriarch of your family. They lived in this patriarchal society where the father's protected everyone, where uh, they had all of the possessions, where if there were widows or kids that weren't able to get married, they were the healthcare system for their families. They provided homes for them. They were the people that cared for family. Usually it was the oldest son that was supposed to have that, supposed to be Esau. And Jacob took that from him. So we can see that passage coming to life already of what was said about these kids in the womb. And second, we see the stealing of this blessing from him. We read a couple chapters later that Jacob went close to his father in Genesis 27. Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him. And he said, this voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Jacob had clothed himself in animal skins and went before his father to steal the blessing from him. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. And so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, Jacob replied. The blessing that Jacob stole from Esau was another one of these things that was destined to be the oldest son's right. Back in this day and age, the oldest person or the the father, the patriarch of the family was the one that had direct communication with God. We see this with Abraham, right? Where he has the three visitors, where he calls them out of the ancient uh, world of Ur, of the Chaldeans, right? We see this happen all the time. We see this happen with Isaac uh, before this. And now we're starting to see that this promise is to be passed on Esau, but is taken from Jacob. And this, up until this point, we have talked about how important it is for us to practice forgiveness. How do we go into forgiving those who have done us wrong? How do we take the posture that Esau will take in a little while and quite a few chapters from now? How do we take that posture where we're able to forgive those who have done us wrong? We've kind of looked at conflict from this lens, right? Where we kind of look at it from a top-down perspective where there's conflict that happens. I don't think we have, maybe my pictures didn't import. 
that might be what happened. Okay, we have no pictures this morning, so we're going to roll with it. Uh, normally what happens is something happens in our life that we can't control, whether it's something that's happened in the world, something that's happened in our friend circle, something that's happened in our families, or some individual has done something to us that deeply impacts our hearts. Deeply impacts our hearts. And usually there's a couple ways that we deal with situations when, they're happen- when they happen to us. The first, that we want to seek revenge. I think we, maybe we have this one. We try to seek revenge, which revenge is the action of inflicting hurt or harm on someone for an injury or wrong suffered at their hands, right? So we think about all the ways of like, how can we just undercut them a little bit? How can we, with that person at work who maybe has done just one or two things more than they should have, how do we talk badly about them to the rest of our coworkers? How do we say something when promotion times are up to help them not get the promotion, how do we, with a family member who's maybe like always canceling things at the last minute, how do we just like, how do we get to the point where we just throw a plan anyways? And if they show up, great, but we're not going to go out of our way for this person, right? How do we get even with people is the question that we were wrestling with. Like, why do we do that? Revenge, we were talking about at South Harbor, is often like drinking poison and expecting it to harm the other person, right? It's this thing that deeply impacts our hearts and can twist them and taint them into these horrible things that do things to people that we wouldn't otherwise do. And then we wrestled with the opposite of that. How do we forgive people? How do we practice this form of forgiveness, which is a conscious, deliberate decision to release the feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you? How do we deal with that hurt in appropriate ways rather than seek revenge and drinking that poison that will only hurt us, how do we practice forgiveness? But what I want to do this morning is I want to flip it. I want to talk about how do we practice repentance. If our hearts have gotten to a point where we've done some wrong in our life, where we've had those moments where we've talked bad about the coworkers, or if we've done worse than that, if we've, if we've harmed somebody in some way, if we have gone behind family members' back, how do we practice repentance for the things that we have done wrong? Forgiveness seems a little bit easier because we all don't like to deal with the things that are happening uh, in our own lives. This is the story of my life. For the longest time, uh, I grew up in Hudsonville, and there's this thing that happens in in my family where uh, we don't like to show that we've done things wrong or that we have any fault in our armor, right? Maybe some of you are with me. We don't like to let other people know that we've done things wrong or we don't have it all together. So this is an ongoing work for me of how do we get to the place of repentance. What do we do when we wrong somebody is the question I want to wrestle with and answer this morning based on the story of Jacob and Esau. I think what most of us do when we don't want to own up to what we do is we run in some way, shape, or form away from the problem. Let me tell you a story from when I was in fifth grade. Uh, When I was in fifth grade, I went to a school called Baldwin or Bauer Elementary out in Hudsonville. Uh, for those of you that went to school maybe in the 90s or 2000s, you might remember, there's not the, that don't have a picture of these either because I don't think I loaded them into ProPresenter the right way. I think that's what I'm finding out. But there were these agendas that we had back in the day where you had to like write down your assignments for like each of your classes and then you had to like bring them home and get them signed by your parents, right? What I found out is on the front of these things, they were like, the, you could like scratch them and make music on them. They were like those like, uh, they had like the grooves in them. And everybody became like the best disc jockey in the world because you were like trying to scratch on them and do all these things. 
super cool things. They had like uh, a they had like a world map in the back, and me and my friend Garrett and Andrew like devised our plans of how we would take over the world, and like who we would invade first, and where we would go, and what we would do. Terrible things to do when you're in elementary school. But I remember I had to get this thing signed every single day by my parents to show, hey, here's the work that I did. Here's the work that I have to do at home. Like all of these things. And I remember if we didn't get it signed, if we came in the next morning, uh, there were these cards. You had a green card, a yellow card, or a red card, right? If you had done something wrong in class or you didn't get turn an assignment in on the right time, you would have the green card up like, okay, you're doing really good in this class didn't you had to take that out and put the yellow card like in front of everybody in the classroom it's like the most like demeaning thing a kid could do if you were in the red like you were probably just better off in the principal's office is like how it was working out but i never wanted to have my card go from green to yellow so i did this thing one time where i forgot the first time and i forged my mom's signature at the bottom and then i realized oh i did this one day but if i bring it home the next day like my mom's gonna see that i forged her signature so i just gotta keep doing it So I did it for like an entire year where I just like forged my mom's signature, got to the end of the school year. She never knew, she probably knew, she never knew that we had to have these signatures. And I threw it in the trash can thinking like, sweet, I was was green the entire year. This is great. Summer vacation is going to be awesome until, think back to when you were kids, you heard your first and your middle name said at the same time. Downstairs in my room, and I heard Christopher David get up here right now. You know you're in deep trouble when that happens. So I went upstairs and my mom said, "Um, hey, is there anything you want to tell me? I was like, I don't don't think so. Like, is there there something I should be worried about? Is there anything you want to tell me about like school or like your agenda or anything like that? I was like, play cool. No, there's nothing I want to tell you about my school or my agenda. Do you want to tell me about like writing my name in the bottom of the agenda for like the entire year or anything like that? I was like, Okay, here's the thing. I didn't want to be the yellow card person, so I forced your signature the entire year. My mom said, okay, well, there are consequences for your actions. Like, I tried to run when I did something wrong. I tried to hide it. I tried to avoid it. I tried to play it off as something wasn't happening. This is my way of typically dealing with things that I do wrong. And my mom laid down the hammer. She said, okay, here's the deal. For your consequences, you're going to be grounded for two months of summer vacation which was insane. I will never ground you for two months during summer, Mila. Just know that. But I remember she gave me the opportunity to say, hey, if you, if you, wanted, if you wanna make this right, if you wanna, you know, she didn't use the word repentance, but if you wanted to make this right, there's a way you could do this. You could own up to what you did and make things right. She said, you can write a note, page long note to your teacher, Miss, Mrs. Tracy, and you can mail it to her at the school. And then your sentence will only go down to five weeks, which is still terrible still an awful thing to have happen. But it was this act of being taught, like, hey, when you do something wrong, you own up to your mistakes. We'll see this in the story of Jacob. But I want to ask the question, what do you normally do when you do something wrong? When you know that there's been something that you've done wrong at work or in your family or with your friends or whatever it is, how do you normally operate? Are you the person that tries to blame situations or circumstances that are outside of your control for why you did the thing that you did. You try to avoid it like I do, where I just don't own up, like I just don't want the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable, sitting in the uncomfortableness, that's a word, in the uncomfort of saying, hey, I did something wrong. I just don't, I just don't want to deal with it. Do you avoid it? Do you just kind of try to make it not a big deal? Do you fight? Do you dig in? Do you like 
do you like go after it and say like, no, I was right in this situation. Like I had every right to do this thing, but deep down, you know, like there is something terribly wrong about what I did. How do you normally run? So I think I, I think I, I'm going to ask this question a lot. I think I have a, like an arrow thing up there, right? Wrong. And how do you run? Yes. Normally when we commit a run or a wrong, we tend to run. We're going to trace this all the way through Jacob's story to get to repentance. Like myself, like many of us, we run a lot from things that we do wrong uh, in life. Jacob as well runs a lot in his life. We're not going to cover all of the passages uh, of where he runs, but he runs from Esau. We see this passage where he deals, he, try, he tries to deal with the fact that he's stolen his birthright and his blessing. Esau comes after him and he's like, dad, show me where my brother is. I want to kill him. Like I, I actually want to, like, I want to take him out. Show me where he is. And Jacob and Isaac is like, no, no, I'm going to tell his mom to send him away for a long time. Jacob runs for his own safety to his uncle's land back far, 400 miles north of where he is. When he lives with his uncle for a long time, uh, at the end of their time together, Jacob has just amassed this massive amount of wealth. He's had, he has multiple wives, multiple servants, like camels, animals, all sorts of land, all sorts of possessions, tents, all of these things that would make you wealthy. Laban's son, his uncle, are getting very jealous of the fact that he's taking everything from his uncle. Jacob doesn't have ill intent with this, but he's starting to take everything from his uncle and his, his nephews or his cousins are getting really upset about it. And so he decides to run and there's a story, you should go and read it. It's in uh, Genesis 31 where he runs and he leaves in the middle of the night. He packs up everything that he has and leaves in the middle of the night and starts to head back. He said, I, could, I should go back to my brother Esau because it'll probably be better there. Maybe Esau isn't thinking about it as much anymore. Maybe he's not as mad anymore. Whatever happens, it'll be better than what my uncle is going to do to me. So his uncle tracks him down in the middle of the night, catches up with him. And in the middle of the night, his uncle says, why did you pack up everything? Why did you leave with my daughters and my grandkids without allowing me to kiss them goodbye? He has this moment where he just tries to run again from the problems that he has, from the things that he has caused. And he runs away. He tries to run away again when he starts to go back to his brother Esau, which is the story. There's three, three passages we're going to read this morning. The first one is here in Genesis 32. The second one is the second half of Genesis 32. And then we're going to stop at the beginning of Genesis 33. But I want to read this to, to show you a little bit about how Jacob runs in this passage. Hear these words from Genesis 32. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When, God, or when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And so he called the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Sire, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, being his brother, that I may find favor in your eyes. Jacob still isn't wanting to own up to the things that he's done in the past. But he thinks, maybe I can appease my brother by giving him gifts before I get there. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. 
He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, for the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers of their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 30 female camels with their young and 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going? And who owns all of these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is becoming, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. You see Jacob still trying to run, still trying to not own up to the fact that he has done some pretty hard and harmful things to his brother. He says, maybe if I can just buy him off, maybe if I can just run away from this by by uh, dulling down his anger towards me. Maybe I can just pacify him or appease him. Maybe just with enough time, this thing will go away. Maybe the hurt won't be there anymore. He was trying to just run long enough that he could outrun the hurt that had happened. Tries to outrun it. And so what happens when we run? There's a lot to learn from Jacob. The next story we're going to look at is what happens when we run for so long and then God finally gets a hold of us. What happens when we run? God humbles us. Humbling is being made less proud, especially by awe or admiration, or by gratitude for help received or an undeserved advantage or honor. Running is being prideful. Running is trying to avoid and keep up your keep up your appearance to say, hey, I'm I'm better than having to ask for forgiveness or trying to avoid whatever it is. Running is a very prideful thing. And the only way that we get to repentance is by Lord humbling us. And Jacob is also humbled a lot in his life. He has a dream at Bethel where he lays down in the middle of the night and the Lord uh, shows this like because he's got this blessing, this, this going up and down of the steps. You may remember this crazy story. And then he like dumps oil on his head while still on the rock and calls this place uh, Bethel. The Lord tells him he'll watch over him and protect him. He's humbled when he's by Laban, where Laban spares his life. He had every right to probably kill him to get his land and possessions back, but Laban spares him. Uh, and Laban pursues him into the desert. And then there's a story where God really humbles Jacob. And I want to read this story because the first three verses of Genesis 33 
are remarkably different than the first 20 we just read because of this encounter with the Lord. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He kind of held back his entire family. He sent everything ahead of him already, but held back what was most important. And so Jacob was, or after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched uh, as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Uh, And then therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob needed this moment. He needed this moment where God entered into his life. He was running from so many things, so many situations that had happened before, whether it was with his brother or his uncle or whatever the situation was. Jacob was so prideful, owning up to every, not never owning up to anything and trying his best to avoid, to appease, to pacify, to make the situation right in ways other than repenting. And so when he runs, we read that God had this distinct and defining moment with him where he needed to be humbled. Where God needed to remind him, hey, I've got your back, but I need you to do some things first. I need you to own up to what it is that you've done. And he touches his hip, makes him have a limp, and he goes from there. And here's what the passage reads. After we're humbled, we then have the ability to repent. Repenting is, is the feeling or expressing sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. And remember, he sent all of these possessions ahead of him to appease, to make the situation right through pacifying his brother, through uh, trying to keep his pride intact. And notice the distinct difference because of the humbling that God has done to his heart. The first three verses of Genesis 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children In front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Had that humbling moment not happened, verse 3 would have read distinctly different. But because he had that moment with God, you see the change in his heart. And it says, He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. This humbling moment that Jacob had with meeting and wrestling with God in the desert is the same sorts of things that we have happened in our hearts all the time with the situations that we have going on. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, on that square, where are you? What point in your story of repentance are you? Is there something that you've done wrong, maybe this morning or the past couple of days or uh, wherever it is in the past couple of months? Is there something that you've done wrong that maybe for the first time 
And I hope that the Spirit is bringing up to your attention. There's something that's gone wrong in your life that the Lord is drawing out of you to deal with. Maybe it's something with your family or friends or co-worker situation. Whatever it is, I hope the Spirit is bringing it up for you to deal with. Maybe you're in this running stage where there's been some things that, like myself with my, with my agenda, maybe there's some things that you've just gotten caught really deep in. There was this one little lie that you told at work that now you've just had to keep living into, right? You just had to keep owning up to it. You've had to keep like living into that sort of thing. Maybe there's an addiction in life that's caused some great harm uh, in your family. Maybe this is the moment where the spirit is saying, hey, stop running from it. Own up to it. Deal with it. And start to be humbled. Are you in that humbling stage where as we've been talking this morning, the Lord is saying, hey, there are some things and now I want you to deal with it. Because there's something that's broken in your life. There's a family member that, that has been greatly harmed by what you've done. Maybe there's something that God has laid on your heart that you've just been humbled this morning to deal with. Much like Jacob wrestling with God, maybe you're in the turmoil of wrestling with God with that. Maybe you're asking questions of like, was my situation really that bad, God? And God's like, yes, it was. But maybe it wasn't as bad as that. What's the humbling that's happening uh, in your life? Sit in that, wrestle with that. And maybe this morning you're moving to a place where, like Jacob, Instead of running, instead of sending all of these gifts or trying to deflect or whatever it is, God is saying, no, deal with it. Go before that person, send the text message, make the phone call, do the FaceTime or Zoom call, send the email, whatever it is that you need to do. Take the posture of Jacob and repent. What we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is this beautiful story of reconciliation with uh, Esau and Jacob. And we'll talk, I'm sure whoever's preaching next week will talk about that. But in order to get to reconciliation, in order to get to the place of right re- relationships being put back right, you first have to spend that time in repentance. So let me pray for you because my prayer for you this week is that God put something on your heart, uh, not fabricated, but something that's real that, that uh, he's calling you into repentance for this week. So God, uh, we, we give this time over to you. We're grateful and humbled by the work that you constantly do. We just pray that in this moment, Spirit is leading us into a direction uh, to deal with what we're running from, to be humbled and take, uh, to, to take acceptance of what it is that we have going on in our lives. Or if there's the message that we need to send afterwards to just begin that process of repentance and reconciliation, would you give us the courage and the energy power to do that as only you can. Recognizing that that journey will be hard. It won't be the easiest thing we've ever done, but the healing that comes through repentance and reconciliation, like we'll see next week, is worth the pain and the effort. So God, do the work that only you can do in our spirits. We give all of this over to you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon.